In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I talk about the layoffs at The Athletic, the ongoing protests that erupted after the murder of George Floyd, and the calls for criminal justice reform that sprang up as a result. And we go over the details of the plan the NBA approved to resume the season in Orlando. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures. And it's first in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Once again, that's lls.org slash bigclimb. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. I guess we sort of have to start this one off, probably going to be a a big portion of the podcast, on a a, a somber note here. Um, On Friday, the Athletic did lay off, what I think, 46 of our friends and colleagues um, across a number of different sports as a result of the... Implications of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic fallout because of that. Two of those people were people we work with very closely in Mike O'Connor, one of our Sixers writers, and Wesley Case, a Philadelphia editor. And just, I mean, this has been a brutal spring. This has been a brutal week with everything going on in the world, and we'll get to some of that. And now you sort of added on top of these, and look, layoffs have been a part of this industry for way too long and there's been a lot here because of this coronavirus pandemic but for it to hit so close to home it is it has been a real tough week and i I guess here's what i'll say and i'll I'll let you take it from there you know we built out our staff almost three years ago now to the day um i i think i signed my signed on in july 2017 and being able to build that staff was quite honestly probably the highlight of my career. And up until this point, we had only lost one person from that staff. And that's because he got hired by a major league baseball team um, and and Ben Harris. So we had had a remarkable amount of stability. And because of that stability, we had grown really close as a group. You know, I didn't particularly know Mike when I hired him. I, I, I joked and it's not even really a joke. Like I hired him because of Twitter threads. Like I knew nothing about this kid outside of the fact that he was really fucking smart. And first of all, the fact that I could go, I remember he had 200 Twitter followers when we we hired him, or at least when I started promoting him before we officially hired him. And I remember at one point somebody telling like, you know, we're a subscription business, right? Like he has to be able to reach customers to sell subscriptions. And I, Look, this kid is really fucking smart. We will get his work out there. We will make him a name and he will cause readers to 
renew. He he will he will differentiate our service. Just trust me on this. And the fact that we were working for a company and building out a staff for a company where I could take a kid out of college that had 200 Twitter followers and get him hired because of Twitter threads because I was that sure he was that smart about basketball. It really like it embodied what we as a company were. And being able to do that and being able to become friends with Mike and eventually friends with Wes who came in down the line and all of the staff that we had and the stability that we had it was it was it was a blessing and now we're sitting here and we really lost and look like i said the only person we lost before them in the philly staff had, was hired by a major league baseball team it took a fucking global pandemic that shut down sports completely for us to really earnestly lose our first person and it was through no fault of mike's own whatsoever it is really the most something you would never foresee happening and i my heart goes out to him I know wherever he lands next, he will he will kill it. Uh, anyone who is thinking of hiring Mike, please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about him. He, like I said, no fault of his own that he is in this spot. We're in a fucking global pandemic and it sucks. But um, just thoughts to 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 both of the uh, to all forty six of the colleagues that we lost, but especially to the two who were worked so directly with us and became colleagues and friends. Yeah, and, and everybody who listens to this podcast knows who Mike is because he's yeah. filled in a lot of times for me or we've done the three-man weave. Yeah, he's super talented. And I think, honestly, if he wants any sort of career in basketball, whether it's in media or, God, whether he could get in on the team side, it's clear that you know he, he knows a lot about how this game is played. And he... Like a lot of the other people who got laid off yesterday, but like you said, he is the one who was close to us. He was a huge part in building the company to where it is today. We were one of the first cities, you know. Right? We're we not. Were, as- we were number six. I think. I think that's 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 an excellent point. I think a lot of people look at the athletic and see like this big, large media company. We were fucking tiny and uncertain, and like I don't want to say we we're hanging by a thread because I don't know what our financial situation was ever like. But we were not a monster when we joined. We. If we didn't nail it at the beginning and Mike was a big part of nailing it, who knows what would have happened? Yeah. yeah and, you know, it got to the point where, you know, we, we have a writer or we had a writer in every market. I don't think that is true now in, in some of the markets simply because of the pandemic. And it just, again, a, a lot of talented people. And I think, I think everybody knows about Mike. I will just add that. Wes, while a lot of our listeners probably don't know who he is, was just as critical as anybody. He was our editor. And, you know, I think part of the reason the modern journalism industry, there are a lot of mistakes that are made, or or maybe it's not quite as up to par as it was in the past, is that when layoffs have been made in the past, editorial staffs have gotten hit really hard. And one of the benefits of The Athletic is that there are a shit ton of editors in the background, whether that's, you know, MBA editors who, you know, help you work on your feature stories, whether that's your city-specific editors who are generally fans of, you know, the, the city teams or grew up as fans of the city teams and work with that city staff. There are overnight editors when you have a game story or something that needs to be published at night, um, they edit it. And they have uh, created a rule where 
the writers aren't allowed to self-publish their own work, which I think for the most part is a good thing because I might have done that at the beginning when we didn't have all of these people working for us and what happened was there were like spelling errors in my uh in my copy and it just wasn't can, as good. You can go back to my Liberty Ballers days. I am not a great writer. It takes a lot of fucking effort. And I'm not a good ed- what, what I'm not I a good type, editor either. Yeah, to turn what I type on that keyboard into English, it takes some real effort. And yeah. And, and so to to bring it back to Wes who was basically our Sixers editor. Um I think one of the things that I'm I'm proud of in the past couple of years is that I have gotten better at writing features. And I think that those deep dive kind of personal stories, um, I have gotten better at writing those. Here's the thing about that. That is 50% or more Wes, because he would tell me, up oh, this story is missing this thing. You know, whether you didn't interview this person he would say, you know what, I don't think you need this part. And he would just clean up the entire story. And when I write something that's 4,000 words, that's not easy to do. And he would pour over everything I wrote meticulously. So to lose him, you know, I know, again, a lot of people don't or might not know who he is just because he was working in the background. He was critical. And we are going to miss him just as much as, you know, as I'm sure anybody else is going to miss their uh, their writers. He was absolutely critical. And look, the, the Athletic, we, we still have a, a massive operation. There there are more editors, and I'm sure we will um, we will soldier on through this, you know, as, as the NBA restarts and, and we will move on as a company. I'm still, you know, very confident about where we are as a company, but yesterday was a terrible day it really sucked yeah yeah we we were actually going to record a podcast yesterday and i texted you and i was like hey can we can we push this you know to tomorrow um because i need a i need a drink and i don't want to start my consultation with the three wise men if we're going to record later tonight yeah no i mean yesterday was really really sucked it really sucked and like i said it's those are freaking friends yeah. you know oh that's the other thing too yeah they're just you you, you personally grow close with these people and it's not just a a business relationship i mean like you spend a lot of time <laughs> with these people and they they learn your quirks they learn you know in wes's case they learn what we stink at and <laughs> our ridiculous um you know work schedules at times and uh yeah it sucks i mean you know, I'll just give an example like from a couple weeks ago, that Iverson practice story I did uh, a couple days before Wes said, where's Larry Brown? And I completely forgot. Where's was, my coach? Yeah. And I, uh, I completely forgot. I was, I, I had Larry Brown on my list, but I just didn't get him. And like a couple days before he was like, this needs Larry Brown if you can get him. And he was right. And you know what? I had built enough trust in him to the point where, like, if he said something or made a suggestion, I would give it a lot of weight. And, and it was not, you know, it was, it was a good relationship. You hear about writers and editors who fight all the time. That wasn't the case here. And in my case, luckily, uh, Larry Brown picked up the phone fairly quickly and it made the story a lot better. 
All right, let's pause for one break to hear from Roman. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically, a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Sixers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Sixers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And now back to the show. All right, so let's move on from a shitty week to a shitty 400-year history of systemic racism in the United States. And of course, with that, we're talking about the murder of George Floyd. While in the custody of the Minneapolis police and the ensuing protests that have sprung up by people demanding not only justice, um, but also criminal justice reform and the fight for racial equality that has led to protests in major cities throughout the week. I guess we'll start off with this. You know, and I, I've, I've been thinking when we recorded last week, it was before the protests had really picked up steam. And I think I was a little bit unsure of exactly how I wanted to broach it. Um, you know, especially last week, my sort of view of the situation was that I wanted to amplify people that really have personal experience with the injustices and that this really isn't about me. You know, I wanted the right people to be sending the messages that needed to be heard. And then I would try to amplify that. And then it built and it built and it built and it built. You know, I think where I'm going to start this off with is Drew Brees. And not only because there is a sports component to that, but because I think, uh, you know, I think it's a good starting off point. And the comments, the comments he made about Colin Kaepernick about respecting the flag. You know, I think at one point on Friday night, I really started to get pissed off that we were talking so much about Drew Brees. You know, it sort of felt like, especially as an online community, it felt like the conversation had become about Drew Brees and his view and whether he had or had not learned from it rather than about the pro what the protests actually stood for and the fight that so many were passionate about. It, it, it sort of felt like we were losing control of the narrative, sort of like we did with Colin Kaepernick all those years ago and how that became you know, about respecting the flag and the troops when that wasn't really at all what it should have been about. You know, but I think I sort of backed off of that and here's why. You know, a lot of people, and I think this is where people of my background, you know, I think this is one of the roles that we have to play in this fight. You know, a lot of us, myself included, at various points in our lives had various things that we were ignorant about not maliciously ignorant, just like legitimately ignorant. Like we hadn't learned enough on some topics. We hadn't experienced enough. We hadn't grown enough. And that's okay. Like we all, we all evolve over time. If not, then I'm, what are we doing? You should always be striving to evolve and to get better. And the one I'll go back to with myself is when I was heading to college. And we don't really need to go into details about how long ago that was, but for some of you listening, that was practically a lifetime ago. You know, but when I was heading to college, I would hear that I was privileged because I was white and I would sort of push back against that. And look, I never had a, a 
mildly racist bone in my body, but it just, it felt like that was almost disrespectful to me and the progress I had made. When I grew up, you know, my mother was a single mother and it was me, my mother and my brother living in a two bedroom apartment, which was about 900 square foot in size. You know, I was very lucky in some respects. I had a, a terrific family, a loving family, a close knit family. I respected the hell out of both my parents for how hard they worked to give us what little bit we had. But in no way did I come from a family of means. To say that we were paycheck to paycheck would be an understatement. You know, a lot of times we were, we were probably a paycheck or two behind. My mom worked two jobs a lot while I was growing up. I was the first one in my family to go to college. You know, I graduated with 90 grand in debt. Um, at no point did I feel quote unquote privileged. And when people said that, you know, I felt like it undersold sort of what I had been through and how hard I had worked and how hard my family had worked to allow me the opportunity to get to where I was. You know, like I, in, in no way did I feel like I was born on third base in, in any respects. But then you go out in the real world and you realize, you know, maybe I didn't come from a family of money, but you go out there and you see what other people have experienced. I've never been pulled over and worried about my life. I get pulled over and I worry about points on my license and insurance premium. I don't go for a jog and worry that someone will see me as a threat because of the color of my skin. I don't go for a job interview and worry that somebody will stereotype me and pass me over even though I'm qualified for it because they're biased. A, a bias they might not even know that they have. I don't, worry, I don't live in a constant state of fear because people judge me based on the pigmentation of my skin. I don't have to worry about any of that. And as you talk to people and you, you realize what they have gone through in life, you do realize that you're privileged. You, do, you, you, gra you grasp the nature of something you didn't know previously existed and you grow as a person. And so, yeah, maybe I wasn't privileged in a financial sense. You know, there were concerns, sometimes life and death concerns that others had to deal with that I never did. And there were opportunities that I had that some with different backgrounds may not have gotten. And for me, I had to get the fuck over myself and realize that acknowledging that reality didn't take away from the accomplishments that I had made, that I can be proud of whatever little success I've had without denying that other people have a harder path and a path that I'll never be able to fully put myself in the shoes of and a path that shouldn't exist in this day and age and a path that we should fight to fix. And I think we all sometimes need to take a step back and take the perspective of some of the people who aren't you. And here's, here's where I'm going. I think there are people, a lot of people who deeply care about the plight and the struggles of everyone on this earth. And I think there are some people who might be ignorant or oblivious to the true depths of the disparity and the fight that some people have to go through because of things out of their control. And I think there are some of those people that could, so, so some of those people that are ignorant that could and maybe should be allies to the cause for equality. So for people like me with the platform I have and my background, you know, I got some questions this week, like, why are you only covering one side of this? Why are you not talking about the looting? Why do you not care about the looting? And, you know, I think, first of all, like, fuck you. I do care about the looting. Like I was on 52nd street on Monday cleaning up. I was on Germantown Ave with a broom and a scrub brush. Like I donated money to the cleanup. I remember seeing a cell phone store that was just absolutely destroyed and decimated inside. Not like a big national carrier run store, but like a little mom and pop franchise type place. Like somebody you could just see 
had their life, life savings go up in flames. It was devastating. Trust me, I care. But the reason I speak out, especially on social media about the protests and about the movement, we don't need a movement for people to realize that looting and vandalism is bad. People know that. That doesn't mean that looting and vandalism are non-existent and are not problems in our society because there will always be people out there to do misdeeds and who are looking to take advantage of situations or advantage of people. But we don't need a national movement for people to realize that's bad. We also can't stop protesting about real legitimate causes, about real legitimate inequities because people will use that as a cover or as a distraction to perform some of these misdeeds. We do need a national movement to shed light on the true depth of the problems that people of color face in this country. And, and we need a movement to have serious and tough conversations about police brutality and criminal justice reform. And part of that push for progress is we need a movement for people to check their biases, to find these, again, what I'll sort of call natural allies, and have them challenge their assumptions. You know, assumptions that we can make. For me, it was about what privilege meant for Drew Brees. And look, I don't, I don't know Drew Brees. I don't know if Drew Brees is truthful and honest about having changed his opinion and grown as a person over the past week, or if he's just reacting to the backlash. I don't, I don't know Drew Brees personally. But there are people like Drew Brees who are really just ignorant because they haven't experienced, because they haven't maybe had their social circle challenge their assumptions. Reach out to them. Challenge them. Convince them that they can grow that this is a cause worth fighting for. Convince them the depths of this problem. Try to show them the perspective of others because I do believe that there are allies out there who can fight for the cause of equality and who can be reached. You know, I think one of the reasons that this protest now is having more, more of an impact is because over the years, over the last decade or two, those sort of natural allies who maybe in the past wouldn't have acted or who wouldn't have spoken out or would have thought, like, this isn't my fight, they are now passionate enough to act even if they're not directly impacted by the inequalities themselves. And I've been at, I've, I've been at two protests this week and the diversity of the protesters and the passion of the protesters and the empathy I have seen, it's been really encouraging to see it. It really truthfully has. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And maybe if you just watch the news or just spoke to people who only focused on eluding, maybe you don't see that, but it's there. So I want to take my platform and amplify the po- amplify the protest that I think is worth being amplified. The cause that I think needs to be heard. And if that means maybe just reaching one person who will challenge their beliefs or who will challenge the beliefs of someone close to them, then it's, it's worthwhile and it's important. And I encourage anyone, maybe you have a platform with a, a, a friend or a family member, uh, a good person who needs help seeing the way, who needs help being shown the true depth of this problem, um, or maybe you have any kind of a social media presence, amplify a message that you believe is worth believing in. Because maybe you reach one person and then that, that whisper can become a cause and that cause becomes a movement and movement can lead to change. And I guess that's sort of my long-winded thoughts on all of this. Yeah, it's well said. I, um, I think the word that has struck me over the past week, you know, you mentioned, I, I guess there are a lot of words, but the, the word that, that really has, you know, kind of stuck in my crawl is, is empathy. I think when you look at just the sheer number of people who are peacefully protesting and yeah, like you said, the, the looting is no good. It's, it's, I don't think it's helping at all, but like you said, that just the number of people who are in Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles and 
literally everywhere in the country. Like I saw yesterday on the Enquirer a bunch of suburbs which are pretty much all white in Philadelphia. Many of them had peaceful protests to tackle the subject of police brutality and specifically in the um, the recent instance of the, the George Floyd video, which was, you know, I think everybody can agree was disgusting and disheartening. One of the most disgusting. I, it was so tough because I, I sat there and I'm like, I feel like I should watch this to fully grasp what is going on. It was one of the toughest things I've ever had to sit through. Like it, it was, it was, it was I, unimaginable, just absolutely devastating. I'm sorry. So I think when you look at just the sheer number of people and a lot of young people who are protesting this, there clearly is something wrong. Like not all of these people are wrong. I'm sorry. And that's where it comes into checking your biases. And yeah, I don't really have probably as profound of words as you would say, like as you had on this, but I've just been using this week to just, just listen, you know, and take it in and then try and talk with whoever is close to you, like you said. And I think that the key is moving forward, you know, as these protests probably die down at some point, maybe not like every day. I don't know when that'll be. Cause it seems like, uh, they're still going pretty strong, which is great um, to, you know, check your biases and have empathy in your daily life moving forward. And, and I don't know what the exact playbook on that is, but I, I just think the general directive is be aware of it. You know, don't, don't forget what happened this week moving forward and try and apply it to your, the lessons you learned to your everyday life. And, uh, you know, hopefully we do that. You know, you know, at the athletic too. I, I know this has been a tough time, but but hopefully, you know, we're able to bring in more diverse voices. And you know, again, it's it's a tough time for us as a company too. So, but you know, moving forward in, in our professional lives, we I, I think that's something we can honestly get better at. And you know, again, I will continue to keep uh, to keep listening to what the message is from these protests and and hopefully try and, and learn some more. And I've already learned a lot over the past couple of weeks. You know, I think one of my big, one, one of the things that really bothers me is how quickly we lost the narrative of the Colin Kaepernick protests and how quickly that was diverted into not being about, you know, police brutality and, and criminal justice reform and how quickly it became a patriotism debate. And I don't entirely know how or why that happened. But it started to happen again with the looting and the vandalism. Yeah. And I guess here's what I would say, because I, I interact with a lot of people, probably too many people online, who want to make the looting and the vandalism being synonymous with the protesters. And look, I was I was I was down there on Tuesday afternoon. Like there were these these are different groups of people. These are people who really truly believe in the change that needs to happen. And are there some people who are then opportunistic because of the distraction of the protests? Sure. Are there some people on either side of the political spectrum who might be using that opportunism? Maybe. But why are you focused on that? Like that, 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 that is not a, that is not a systemic 400 year old problem that needs a cause behind it. Why are we like, 
even if, if people are using the protests as a cover to then go out and be opportunistic, why is that distracting from the root cause? And why are you letting it distract? Why are you arguing that it should be distracting? And I think that's one of those biases that props up. And like I said, we shouldn't lose just because the protests aren't perfect, or maybe there are then bad actors who are using the protests as cover to be opportunistic. That does not detract from the overall message. Why focus on what is important? And look, I don't know. I don't have all the answers for, you know, criminal justice reform. I'm not well read enough on that subject. And that's a very hard subject to tackle. But why are we, why are, don't deny that the problem exists. Don't deny that there are people out there who have a different life experience than you. Like you said, be empathetic. Listen to their struggles. Listen to what they have lived through. And demand change. And uh, I don't know, I, that's probably all I have really to say on it, but it's just, it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been a, a tough couple of weeks in many different respects. All right, let's pause for one more break. This time to hear from Manscaped. With basketball returning soon, the debate rages on. Who is the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure is Manscaped is a GOAT for men's grooming. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below the waist grooming and hygiene with their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology designed to reduce snags. Manscaped is changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 Essentials Kit. The Perfect Package 3.0 Kit comes with a new and improved lawnmower, 3.0 water-resistant cordless body trimmer, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag for you to use whenever it is we're done quarantining. Subscribers to the Peak Hygiene Plan get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Play it safe with the Lawnmower 3.0 and you get 20% off plus free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. Once again, that's code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, with, with the Kaepernick issue, you did see kind of the same playbook where, yeah, like you said, a couple years ago, it turned into... Um, disrespecting the flag and of course of, of course Mike Pence said that he's with peaceful protesting when you know he walked out on a on a peaceful protest that it wasn't Kaepernick I believe it was like Eric Reed and the other 49ers at that point um, but they were following suit they were following the precedent he had set yeah yeah they were taking a knee and, and I do think you know when you see all of these protests pop up around the country and people became uncomfortable they said well no 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 Kaepernick would have been fine then and it's you know it's it's you you could just tell whatever you know the people who don't want to listen whatever makes them even the slightest bit uncomfortable they're trying to get that you know they're trying to get back to the status quo and uh that is why I uh I really hope these these protests um do change something you know I don't know what it, what exactly it will be. It's like you said, I'm not, uh, unfortunately, I'm not as well read on actual things that matter as much as like the NBA salary cap or, uh, you know, what, <laughs> what plays the Sixers are running. But uh, yeah, something has to change here for sure. Yeah. And I mean, look, it's from the, how different municipalities and localities have different laws from police unions to all kinds of issues that, I don't know the solutions to, but I think what you sort of said there was important. Like progress is usually uncomfortable. 
Just because you are uncomfortable does not mean we should stop pushing for progress. And people like Mike Pence, just because somebody kneeling makes you uncomfortable does not mean we should disregard the cause. It, it's okay. This is where I, I can really start getting pissed off. Yeah. I don't probably... want you to get on the, I don't want you to get on the Trump and Pence tangent right now. Well... Cause, cause we, we honestly could be here for, <laughs> this could be an eight hour <laughs> podcast. I, uh, I, I could go out and get a sandwich. Um, <laughs> While socially, di- while socially distancing. Right, of course, of course. It is, you know, I actually, believe it or not, try not to be political on, on Twitter. I don't consider Trump to be a political stance. I consider that to be a I agree. humanitarian stance. That is a moral stance. Yes. We will move on and talk about what people subscribe to this podcast for, which is basketball and CBA and plays. So the league through the owners, and the Players Association both passed a 22-team plan to resume action in Orlando. Did they now? They did. If you blinked, you would have missed it because there's been... It felt so weird writing about basketball this week. It felt so weird. And it feels even more weird right now talking about basketball. But 22 teams will head down to Orlando. That includes, um, what, nine in the Eastern Conference and 13 in the Western Conference. They will then play eight regular season games. I think they said one or two preseason games. Uh, training camp will can start as early as June 30th. I have reached out to the Sixers. They have not yet confirmed whether they will start exactly on that date, but it will be right around there with the season then resuming on July 31st. So the way it will work is the top eight teams, after, after these eight regular season games are played, the top eight teams from each conference will go to the playoffs. The um, if the eighth and the ninth seed are within four games of each other, then there will be a an elimination tournament to figure out who will go to you know, who will be that eighth seed. Which not a huge fan of, but we'll get we'll get to that. And then regular playoffs will resume from there. I guess real just general overall thoughts on the format, how it impacts the Sixers, and what to expect going forward. Well, I, I think the, the there are a bunch of different factors that the NBA were weighing here. There was money, and I know people don't want to hear this, but that was a huge factor. It's a huge factor, and honestly, like you, you can you can criticize the NBA a little bit on it, but you know, I'm sure the players wanted their money too. I think I saw, and I I don't know who to attribute this to. It might have been Woj. I think it was somebody at ESPN. I thought I saw. Just from playing the eight games among the the 22 teams, the NBA players will save $300 million. Just from local television contracts and hitting their numbers and all of these things. $300 million for playing eight games. So it was clear that was part of it. I also do... uh, and look, that that three hundred million. When you're talking about losing the fannies and seats money too, like that's 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 relevant. Yeah, I just, I just I'm sorry, bums and seats, bums and seats, bums and seats. Yeah. God damn it! So I'm so out of basketball shape, not like playing shape, but like talking shape, that I screwed even that one up. Well, that was a good segue too, because I think the players are very much out of basketball shape, and I do see their point. Like I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of cynics will point and say. Oh man, the the players and the owners, they just want their money. Um I actually am with the players. They need games to warm up and play. They need 
like games that mean something. You can't have exhibition games, but you need games that need that mean something uh, to warm up. And you can't just jump right into the playoffs because that's the most intense basketball of the year. And I'm sure we're going to see some some injuries that come from the uh, the quick restart. But I do think having eight games will hopefully allow these players to get into somewhat of a rhythm. And I, you know, it's it's interesting. I think Nate Duncan was talking about this, but basically studies in, in recent years have shown that some of the best play has actually come at the beginning of the year when everybody is fresh. So, so hopefully that is the case. But so I think that's one part of it. As far as the, uh, the teams they brought back, I, I don't mind it as much. I mean, it's a middle ground. I don't understand why Washington or Phoenix is here. I yeah. I guess Washington actually does have a chance. What are they? They're two back of four games back, so they're they're six no, they're, games back. Yeah, they're five and a half games back. Okay, so yeah, so imagine. they're they're two back of the landing zone for them yeah. to uh Can I just say though, I don't like the landing zone. Like that disproportionately oh, yeah. values these games now and disvalues what happened in November, December, and January. Like if it's it's tough though. I, if can Washington I, ends up three games back of Orlando, Orlando should get that spot. I'm sorry, so, and I know so, you have to get teams. You have to get as many teams as you can, and then this bubble city, so you can recoup some of that money. And you have to make these games matter, so you have to give it some stakes. But I just I feel like we're overvaluing what happens during these couple of weeks in Orlando. But whatever. So I, I agree with you there, and I, I would just add, like in Washington's standpoint, like they're not a playoff team. No, they're 24 and 40. They, they, like, they don't feel even one iota like a playoff team. Some of these West teams, we'll talk about them in a sec. Like like Zion Williamson not playing for uh, for what, three or four months? Or, or Portland without Nurkic and Zach Collins for forever. Okay, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them either. And I would have probably went to just 16 teams playing the regular season. But at least they have more of a case. Like, like I, those right. teams at full strength feel somewhat like playoff teams. But in the case of Washington, they don't feel like a playoff team just because they're so bad. And then Phoenix is pretty bad too, but they have to jump over like four teams to get it. Or Yeah, they have to jump over four teams, right? To get into the nine spot. I think I heard Kevin Pelton say that he ran a hundred simulations and Phoenix did not make the nine seed once. So I guess if you were trying to do this, I would have cut it off at 20 teams. But, you know, I'm sure there was probably some push from Phoenix saying, hey, we want our young guys to play, you know, these pseudo playoff games. We want them to get reps and experience and Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton will get better. Yeah, I I don't really think it's particularly all that entertaining. Um the, the one thing I will push back on in terms of fairness, like in the Western Conference, Memphis's schedule was supposed to be brutal down the stretch yeah. of these games. Brutal. And New Orleans was supposed to be like cupcake easy. And I know the uh, the Sixers were going to have to take a road trip to play both of those teams. So, But I do think like the Sixers were, in New Orleans' case, they were one of the tougher teams they were going to have to play. And Memphis, it was like, that was just like another night for them. Down, down the end of the, the stretch. But, there, I mean, look, there are a lot of problems with it, right? Like, And to be fair, there was no clean solution either. 
there are a lot of problems. Because I, I wrote about this in, in my piece on The Athletic the other day. Let's say the Sixers are jockeying for position with one of these teams, and one of them has to play the Lakers at the end. On paper, that's a really hard matchup. They might have nothing to play for. They might, you know, not, not to say they'll uh, they'll completely shut everybody down, but, you know, they're not going to try that hard, and maybe they play LeBron 20 minutes or something like that just to keep them in shape and, and fresh and in rhythm. But if the Sixers play somebody like Orlando, who is four and a half games ahead and fighting for their playoff lives or fighting for the the right to skip that play in uh, series. I think the uh, the incentive structure is is all sorts of jacked up, I would say. And yeah. look, that's I, I think some of that is unavoidable. But again, we're we're in a pandemic and they're trying to do something, but yeah, I think it's it's certainly a clunky tournament. I think good for them that they were able to recoup some of the money. And it seems like, you know, we haven't mentioned this yet, but this is obviously the most critical part of it. It seems like a little bit of a risk to add a couple of these teams and adding, you know, I don't know, was it 40, 50 bodies more into this bubble? And that's something that, uh, you know, it's been discussed a little bit on the, uh, the hardcore NBA outlets recently where, you know, it, it sounds good. It sounds like they, they have a plan for return to play, but we want to hear what the, the medical part of this is yep, and how they react to the, um, you know, what are the contingencies if one player gets sick, two player gets sick? Uh, is there any point in which you shut down play? Uh, what type of, you know, family members are they allowed in? What is the, uh, the bubble going to look like in terms of like outdoor movement? Um, you know, how many hotels are you going to be at? I, some of these have been leaked and answered, but, uh, the NBA has not officially come out with their, their full medical protocols for this. And I don't think it's for a lack of trying. I think they're, they're kind of finalizing them, but seriously, they should get them out there pretty quickly. Yep. Okay. Let's pause for one more break. You know, one thing we'd always like to do is to do more for the community. And that's especially true with everything that's gone on during the last few months. Most of our listeners to the Sixers beat are loyal Philadelphia fans and residents just like you. What better way to advertise your business than on your favorite 76ers podcast? To advertise on this very show, just go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away. So go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. And now back to the show. You know, the one you should be advertising on. All right, two more quick Sixers things and then we will move on. First of all, the Sixers cannot fall any farther than the sixth seed because the Sixers are eight and a half games up on Brooklyn, who holds seven, and there's eight games left. So the Sixers will be at least a sixth seed. They cannot fall any farther. They're obviously tied with the Pacers at 39 and 26, and they are two games behind the Miami Heat at 41 and 24. Theoretically, they are four and a half games behind Boston for the three seed, but that seems insurmountable. So really, you're talking four, five, and six are the places the Sixers. Top end of that, likely to finish. Bottom end of that, farthest they can go. 
you know, I think there's, we'll probably spend a decent amount of time talking about what the Sixers, what would be the best outcome for the Sixers. Obviously, if you play these, if you finish in the sixth seed, you play Boston in the first round, but then you get Toronto in the second round. If you do advance, you avoid Milwaukee until the conference finals. If you move up into that four or five, either way, like finishing a four seed has, there's no reason to aim there's, for that because there's no cannot, value. Yeah. There's no value. There's no home court advantage. But if you end up in that four or five, you would then get Milwaukee in the second round. I do think Miami would be an easier team to beat in the first round than Boston would be. You think? I, yeah, I do. I think, I mean, I think just generally Boston is a better team. I agree. With I that. think the Sixers match up well with Boston, but keep in mind that the four times they played was pretty early in the season before Jason Tatum had really started to turn it up. And he had, he struggled a little bit towards the end of the season, but like he, he was, he was, he was a different kind of player there in December and January than when the Sixers played them. Look, I don't think this, I think the Sixers have a, a who knows what kind of shape they'll come back and what kind of focus they'll have. But I think from a talent perspective, the Sixers have a chance against either team, but I do think Miami's just a generally worse team. Um, the other thing, the draft pick, the top 20 protected draft pick, Originally from Oklahoma City that the Sixers would get. If Oklahoma City finishes anywhere between 21 and 30, the Sixers get it. Right now, Oklahoma City is tied with Houston at 40 and 24 for the 21st slash 22nd slot in the draft. The Sixers and the Pacers are tied for 19 and 20 at 39 and 26. We're talking about a game and a half difference. That is still up in play. So if um, Oklahoma City plays really poorly, Sixers play really well. The Sixers could actually play their way out of a draft pick. There's a lot of really weird incentives going forward. You know, I think where I sort of stand on this is the Sixers need to be playing good basketball going into the playoffs. Yeah. And regardless of seeding, regardless of draft pick, that's the most important thing, especially with a, if you start off with a starting lineup that has never played together and a team that, you know, might have its star player not be in the perfect shape. We'll see. We haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen Joel. I don't know what he looks like. Um, but who has had a history of maybe not being in the best shape when basketball starts? Get everyone on the same page. That should be the focus. And then everything else, wherever it happens to fall, that's where it falls. I think the six seed would be better for them in terms of just advancing as far as, as they can. But I do agree with you that you cannot tank these eight games. And I think if they, they do play good basketball, odds are just could. You know, we have to see what the schedule looks like, but if it's what Vince Goodwell from Yahoo tweeted out where he said it's basically going to be your next eight games against teams that are in the bubble. I mean, there's two Washingtons in there, which is like, I know the Sixers never win in Washington, but like there's no... When you compare that to, I think other, there's an Orlando in there too, and they never win against Orlando either. Which yeah, maybe it's maybe it's really hard. I you know maybe I should reevaluate. Also, but, since it's not the Wells Fargo Center, they could go zero and eight. That is true, but it's not the road either. So maybe they. Uh, I mean, it is the road, but it's it's not a another team's home venue. But if you look at that schedule compared to what the other teams are going to play, there are no bad teams anymore. There's no Chicago. There's no Golden State. There's no Cleveland. So uh, those that that'll be on paper an easier schedule. Although, like I said, you know maybe Washington and Orlando are actually playing for something, whereas the Lakers or the Clippers or somebody aren't. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the six would still be better though because I think Milwaukee is the 
the 800 pound gorilla in the East. Like I think that's as long as they get everybody back healthy. I know there are questions about if Giannis and Bud can do it in the playoffs. I'm sorry, they've been the best team by a mile. I am, I am making them the the massive favorites in the East, and I do think there is a there's some level of validation if the Sixers were able to beat Boston and Toronto and turn in a better playoff performance. Maybe Al Horford can recoup some trade value. Maybe that can just be a reminder that, hey, this team was at least somewhat right and that the playoffs are a different sport and throwing all your eggs into that basket are okay. And that that might still even be true even if you lose to Milwaukee. But yeah, I think there's a chance that they're they're looking at the five seed and they'll play something like a toss-up series against Miami. And I also think there's a decent chance they lose the the Oklahoma City pick. All these teams are bunched so tight together. Uh, Oklahoma City has, I guess, something to play for in the West where they're in the middle of a bunch of teams that are jumbled up. I don't know, you know, what matchup they want. You know, they, again, they're not playing for home court advantage. So it's uh, it's going to be a weird thing. But, you know, I think we know the Sixers are going to play a tough first round series and... You know, I, I guess we'll go from there. The uh, the one thing I saw, the stupidest thing I saw, these top seeds who are saying that they want like an extra foul, yeah, or whatever, or an extra possession. Yeah, look, I get it. You're you're getting somewhat screwed here. Home court advantage does matter. Here's the thing: it doesn't matter until game seven, though. Yep. So so like what? Like you're gonna give LeBron seven fouls in game three when you would be playing. In the other team's arena, I don't know. I thought that was pretty dumb, but uh, just go out. If you're for the Lakers, like you shouldn't need, you know, you shouldn't need help beating the New Orleans Pelicans if that's what it comes out to. Like, pr- just prove you're the best team. It's a, it's a neutral location. Um, uh, look, I, I have, like I said, I have some, some sympathy because what it, happened in December isn't counted as much anymore. Yeah. but like, you can't change the rules of the game. If Milwaukee loses a game seven to the Sixers then I'll be a little bit sympathetic to them. And it's like a close game. I mean, I, I'll still say, get the hell out of here. You lost. Right. But I think there is at least some level of an argument like, all right, man, we we played all year for game seven at home. And shit, you don't have to tell the Sixers about how important that is. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea that like we want more fouls, we want more possessions, just shut off. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's too far. It's too far. All right, I think that is probably a good enough place to cut it off. Uh, we have to keep some stuff for the coming weeks because we still have a couple of weeks before training camp would even begin, and also because I have some rage tweeting to go do. You know, real quick before we go, once again, please follow Mike O'Connor at M-O'Connor underscore NBA on Twitter. Again, the quality of his Twitter threads is quite literally the reason that we hired him. In the first place, I'm sure he will be able to educate you on the Sixers, on the NBA and on the X's, X's and O's of basketball, whether that is on Twitter or wherever he does end up next. He is not just a colleague, but a friend, and I will always stand for him. And with that out of the way, thank you, Rich, for jumping on. Have a good one, or at least as good of a one as you can, considering everything that is going on.